0: Well, this morning we come to the end of this glorious chapter here in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be considering together uh, verse 25 to the end, that is verse 25 through verse 28. The title of our sermon is Able to Save to the Uttermost. If you found yourself in serious, desperate, physical peril, There may be those around you who would earnestly desire to save you. They may even earnestly determine to save you from your physical peril. But they would be utterly useless and of no help at all unless they were able to save you from your peril. Well, how much more when it comes to the saving of a soul from the desperate circumstances of its sin and the consequences of eternal damnation which flow in its wake. To have one, even one from heaven, who earnestly desired to save and who perhaps determined to save would be of no avail unless he was also able to save. And what we have in our passage this morning is that one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest of his people set before us as the one and only person who is infinitely able to save even to the uttermost all who come to him, all who come to God by him. We've seen throughout uh, chapter seven, a very long string, if we begin to enumerate them as I did Uh, last Lord's Day, a very long string of arguments and evidences for the superiority of the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ over against and in contrast to the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood. Jesus so far excels that they're hardly able to be compared in that sense. And so here, we come in verses 25 to 28 to what really amounts in chapter 7 to the climax. Uh, this is the, the close and the conclusion to which everything else has been building. This momentum that we felt with one thing after another, setting forth Christ's supremacy before us, it's all leading to the conclusion that's drawn here at the end, which is primarily an application The application of all of these glorious doctrines, we've applied them as we've gone, gone along. But here we see the the inspired application to the faith and comfort of, of believers. The question really comes, if you're a believer, what can you expect? What can you expect from this great high priest? What is it that you anticipate receiving from his priestly ministry? Well, that is given to us at least in part. The answer is given to us at least in part in the words of, of our text. The, the preeminence and the excellency uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest is seen in his ability to actually save, to actually save sinners. And here we see that he saves by three, I think, notable truths that pertain to his person and to his office. We'll note three things here as we seek to open up and unpack these words together. First of all, Christ's strength. So we begin in verse 25 with Christ's strength to save. Notice, children, as you've been so uh, frequently taught, that it begins with the word wherefore or therefore. And so we want to know why. Why is that word there? What, what is it that, that has been said previously that he is now going to draw a conclusion from? And in essence, he's, the word wherefore brings together uh, a few things. It's saying, you know, because of the oath which the Father swore to the Son because of the immutability of that oath, because Jesus is the surety of a better covenant, because Jesus is one who has an unchanging high priesthood, therefore or wherefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. And so it's Christ's strength to save. He is able to do what Aaron in all of his splendored earthly glory could never dream of doing, he is able to do what the Levites and that long string of, of priests, generation after generation, could never do, could never achieve. Here we're seeing something of Christ's power as a high priest, his capability, his sufficiency, not just in his person, but in his office as, as a high priest. He is able to save. Now that word save implies something, doesn't it? To be to be, saved, to be in need of being saved means that we need to be saved from some evil, that we need to be saved from some danger, that there's something that we're at risk of succumbing to and we need someone to deliver us from it. And the answer to the question, what is that, is simple enough, it's sin. It's sin that we have to be saved from, along with all of its consequences. We need to be saved from the stains, right, the the pollution, the internal corruption that sin brings with it. We need to be saved from the guilt, that objective declaration of, of our guilty sentence against a broken law. We need to be saved, therefore, from the curse that the law brings to us as a consequence of our sin. We need to be saved from the penalty and punishment that flows from this, from the sentence of the law. We need to be saved from the wrath That is to come. We need to be saved from sin. And its consequences. And the fact is that many men. Men, women, and children. Many think that this is a relatively easy thing. For a soul to be saved. From their sin. Relatively easy thing. Perhaps because of familiarity for some. Right? Knowing the, the history of redemption, knowing the, the facts and theology of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done, knowing some of what that has entailed and whatnot. The familiarity can lead people to think, well, yes, this is all familiar ground. This is stuff we know. And it may feel easy, sit lightly, as it were, on the, on the mind. Nothing could be further from the truth. Easy to save a soul from sin. Think about it. If it were easy, why couldn't an angel do it? They've been sinless in their estate since the beginning. The elect angels. Why can't they do it? They're overwhelmingly powerful. They like slay 285,000, of them in a single night. They have the ability to do all sorts of things beyond our, our native abilities and so on. If it's so easy, why can't those who love us the most dearly, why can't they save us from our sins and so on. The fact is that it is not at all easy to subdue Satan, to subdue this great ar- archenemy of, of God Himself, to crush His head. Is it an easy thing to fulfill the law? Do you find that as an easy concept to wake up and in your thoughts, in your words, in your affections, in your attitudes, in your ambitions, in your actions, and everything that you do to, to do all that the law requires of you? To refrain from doing anything that the the law prohibits from you? Is this an easy thing? No. It's not easy to fulfill the law. Is it an easy thing to atone for sin? To appease the wrath of God? To purchase grace and glory? We could go on and on. No, my friends. Open your Bibles. Take a stroll back into the Garden of Gethsemane. Look upon the scene that is depicted for us there. Look long and hard. Was it easy? Look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as depicted throughout the entire entirety of the Gospels. No, this is not something easy. It's not something that is even conceivable, humanly speaking. It is not something possible with the arm of flesh. What do we sing in Psalm 89? Those beautiful, beautiful words. Then thou spakest in a vision to thy holy one and saidest, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. The Lord could have looked and looked and looked, and none would be found. But he laid hold upon one who is mighty. He looked, and there was one, his own son, who was able to save. I have exalted one chosen out of the people the psalmist says and so he the Lord Jesus Christ alone is able to save a single soul from sin but that's not all the passage says it says that he is able to save to the uttermost and this is perhaps this word uttermost is the thing that makes this particular verse stand out in our minds and imaginations in contrast to so many other verses that are otherwise similar to it. Here we're told that he saves to the uttermost. It's a unique feature in that sense. He saves completely. He saves entirely. And The the duration of salvation is, is, is full. And he saves in terms of whatever hindrances, whatever difficulties may lie in the way, he overcomes them all in order to save because he saves to the uttermost he's able to overcome them all you think about all of the angles at which you could come from come to this and indeed we could stop here this morning and just begin to pull one thread after another and settle and unpack each of them he saved to the uttermost think in terms of the numbers of those that he saves the number of the elect Described as thousands upon thousands and countless thousands. And described as the stars of the heaven. Described as the sand upon the seashore. Described as what is an innumerable multitude to us. The Lord Jesus Christ saves all of the elect from Adam to the end of time at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't wrap our minds around the throng that in the end will stretch out like a sea without a shore it would seem before the throne of the Lamb of God. He saves to the uttermost. He saves despite all of the difficulties. Despite all of the things that must be overcome, that our sins create as barriers between us and God. Impenetrable barriers. He comes leaping over the mountains. He comes leaping over all of these high hills in a single stride. All of the the, the difficulties in terms of our own state. The temptations with which the believing people of God are assaulted. The devil, the world, our own sin within us. Persecutions that, that God's people face and innumerable other hindrances. No, he saves to the uttermost. Beyond all of these things. He saves to the uttermost in terms of, of of reaching his infinitely powerful arm into the lowest depths in order to pluck the most likely unlikely brands from the fire. There we are at Pentecost in Acts chapter two and wonder of wonders. You know what amounts to a handful of days have passed since Christ was hoisted up between heaven and earth as the final sacrifice for sin. And when not only the chief priests and the elders and so on, but as it were, the Jews as a whole and mass stood as it, before that hill of Golgotha of Calvary and screamed, crucify him, crucify him. Let his, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And within a very short space, the one who is now at that point exalted at the right hand of heaven Cours out the Holy Spirit upon Jerusalem. That place of ignominy. And there we see sinners, Jewish sinners, who at hand in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, Peter calls them out in his sermon as those who have been guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. And here is Christ able to save to the uttermost, even these most unworthy sinners, bringing them unto himself. And you think of Corinth, that Gentile city, not Jewish, Gentile city. And he says, look, all of the, you know, the murderers and the the sodomites and the adulterers and idolaters and these will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Corinth, such were some of you. The Lord had come to save to the uttermost these who had been notorious sinners in the past, and we could go on and on. He saves He saves David after all of his debauchery. He saves Manasseh after all of his wickedness. The Lord is able to save to the uttermost. And he's one who saves to the uttermost in terms of a salvation that is without end. He saves into and throughout all of eternity, so that it is a permanent salvation that endures forever and ever. He saves perfectly. There's not a single sin, the most minute of them that would go undetected by the human eye that goes unpardoned by the, the God of glory. All of them atoned for. He saves to the uttermost because he saves the whole man. He doesn't just save the soul of God's people. He saves their bodies as well. He doesn't just save one part of the soul or one part of the body, but he saves all parts, all of the faculties of the soul, our, our, our corrupt minds and volitions and affections and consciences and everything else, our body, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears. He saves to the uttermost so that on the last day, we're told in Ephesians 5, he presents his bride as one without spot, without blemish take out your magnifying glass and go from top to bottom over the whole of Christ's glorified people, inside and outside, you will find not a blemish. He saves, my friends, to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost. What a glorious high priest is this? What talk of Aaron! Now, what talk of a, an ongoing Levitical priesthood? What talk of fabricated priesthoods that have, have arisen since then? When we have one like the Son of Man, the one who is the Son of God presented to us as the great high priest who comes able to deliver in his salvation an all embracing salvation from sin and all of its consequences. He saves to the uttermost. You think, well, this is glorious, Pastor. I've I've caught a sight of it. Maybe not as much as I wish, but I've seen something of it. I can hear what's being said and so on and so forth. But there's a pressing question in the hearts of some of you. And you're saying there's no doubt that He's all that God says He is. All that the book tells us He is. All of that is true. He is indeed able to save to the uttermost. But to whom does this apply? Ah, yes. That question. The question that haunts the hearts of many. Could it apply to me? It's a wonderful thing to think of being saved to the uttermost. Who does it apply to? Well, clearly it is not a universal atonement and a universal salvation because not everyone is saved to the uttermost. That's the wrinkle behind the question, isn't it? That's the thing that, that's the burr that, that scrapes against us. The knowledge that not all are saved, much less saved to the uttermost. Who? Who is it then? Who? The text tells us able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. This is who. It's the elect. Those who come unto God by him, who don't come unto God on their own, who don't come and think, well, I'm going to church and reading my Bible and trying to be good and I'm contributing something by way of merit to God's acceptance of me and so on and so forth. No, these have forsaken those notions altogether. We can't appear before God in our own righteousness. We don't have any. We can't appear before God in ourselves because ourselves are condemned. We can only appear before God by coming by, through, in, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his priestly work through the sacrifice that he has offered in himself, through the, the priestly work that he does in his intercessions for his people that come to God by him. Well, this is the problem because there are some of you here this morning and within the sound of my voice. And you hear, you hear about the glory of Jesus Christ. You hear about all that he is and, and, and what he's able to do and and his office of high priest, and so on. Some hear, but refuse him. Jesus says it himself in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. And ye will not come to me, that ye have life. What's the problem this morning? Clearly on the basis of everything we've heard so far. The problem is not on God's side. On his ability to save sinners. The problem, my friend, is on your side. It lies entirely on your side. And the Lord is coming to you this morning. And he's saying, ye will not come. That ye might have life. Your rebellion. Your unbelief. Your disobedience. Your refusal to bow. Your refusal to heed the command. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Ye will not come. And so it's the language of Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusteth in man. Who makes flesh his arm. Whose heart departs from the Lord. He says it's, you're like a heath. You've come to the word of God this morning. And you're standing before a mirror. And as you, under the preaching of God's word, look into that mirror, the Lord shows you who you are. And he says you're like a heath in the desert. Parched land, withered, dried, brittle, frail, dying what you see in the mirror of god's word is a heath a dried out shrub blessed is the man who trusts in the lord whose hope the lord is he shall be like a tree planted by water whose green whose leaves will be bright green vivid green whose boughs will be filled with fruitfulness who have vitality and life and strength and so on. This is the picture of the one who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks then of those that come unto God by him. That coming means believing. You're not doing something with your physical feet. I come to church, okay? It's not equivalent to coming to Christ. Coming is, is, is the work of the soul. It is believing. It is resting. It is receiving. It is relying upon. It is placing all of your confidence in who Christ is and what he's accomplished and forgetting everything else in terms of your spiritual bankruptcy. Laying hold of him. Clinging to him. Depending upon him as the one who alone is able to save you to the uttermost. That's coming to God by him. That's coming to the Lord Jesus Christ by him. But coming to him is not just believing. It is that. It's also worshiping. We come to God by him for the purpose of worship. To be made worshipers. We're saved in order to be made worshipers of the living and true God. This involves both reliance upon him as well as submission to him and and obedience to him. The father is drawing sinners unto himself. He's drawing his people Unto the Lord Jesus Christ. In order that they might worship him. What else could be the consequence? If God is coming to save to the uttermost by his grace. It is inescapably necessary. That those who are recipients of that redemption. Fall on their faces and adore him. All praise and honor and glory and majesty and dominion be unto Him. The Lamb who is seated upon the throne. No glory for me. Not a drop. Not a fraction of a drop. Not a microscopic drop. No glory. at All glory to Him. Praise be to His great name. He is the altogether glorious Savior of sinners in His sovereign grace. He receives the glory. And so we worship Him. But we're still not done because it says, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And, and notice how, how the verse is actually flowing. So, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession. Right? That's connecting the, the, the parts of the thought together. He is able to save to the uttermost, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession. Well, this is actually loaded This is the reason why he's able to save to the uttermost. Because of his perpetual life and because of his perpetual work as a high priest. Therefore, he's saving to the utter uttermost. Yes, it's true. Jesus died for his people. He died as the Lamb of God to take away their sins. Christ died. The cross, Calvary, all of it. Beautiful, indispensable, equally indispensable. He also lives for them. If you only think about the cross, Christ dying for his people, and fail to think about Christ living for his people, then you are missing a huge chunk of what this salvation entails. He lives for them. I mean, this is, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 if Christ isn't raised from the dead, if he hasn't been resurrected, if he hasn't ascended to the right hand of the Father, you're, in other words, if he's not living, your faith is zippo, empty, dead, vain, absolutely necessary that Jesus be the resurrected, ascended, and reigning Lord in heaven. We'll cover that. We'll come back to this more in a moment. <clears throat> and so you see here Christ's strength to save. Christ's strength to save. What's that mean? It means this for those of you, my friends, those of you who are tempted, who feel beaten and battered by the temptations that come from sin. Those who are this morning despairing and who think to yourself, it's hopeless. I'm beyond reach. There's, there's nothing for me in this. For those of you who are waking up from the, the stupor of being a prodigal. And beginning to be aroused to your senses. What was I thinking? Where am I? Where is it that I have come from? Those who indeed are spiritually far off this morning. Far, far From the Lord and from his heavenly country. The Lord is coming to you this morning. He's coming to you. And he's saying, I'm able to save to the uttermost. What's necessary is for you to stop listening to your sinful self. You need to stop listening to your sinful self, that voice in your head, which multiplies and strings out all of the objections, all of those barriers, all of those enormous walls that stand between you and the Savior on your side, and say, It can't be, and it won't be, and it may, may not be, and so on and so forth. Listen to the Lord, your voice. Is worthless. Hear the voice of the Lord this morning. He is able to save to the uttermost. To leap in a stride over all of the mountains. Of the obstacles that you see looming before you. And to save your sinful miserable soul. The fact is. If you don't come. You will be cast out. And if you do come, you will never be cast out. And so you must come. You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's strength to save. Secondly, Christ's suitability to save. Christ's suitability to save. Verses 26 and 27. For such a high priest became us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for their own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Christ's suitability to save. His success as a high priest flows from his excellencies. His irrefutable success flows from his infinite excellencies. For such a high priest became us. That means such a high priest was suited to us. Perfectly suited, suitable to us. He he was exactly the kind of high priest that we needed. He was all that we needed. There was nothing that we needed that wasn't found in him. He became us. How so? Because he's holy. This is speaking of his nature in terms of who he is. Remember, when he's conceived in the womb of the virgin, the Bible refers to him as that holy thing the Holy Spirit conceiving the holy seed in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We are unholy, we are the polar opposite of holiness. We're not pure and we're not separated, but he is holy. So holy that Satan had nothing on him. Satan had nothing he could light upon. He could latch upon. He could point to. He could manipulate. He could use like he does with us. We're unholy. We present all sorts of things for the devil to make use of. The devil comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. He can't find anything. Nowhere to land on him. He couldn't find anything in him. His holiness refers to that which is Godward, right? He is holy unto the Lord. He is holy as the Lord is holy. He is conformed to the perfect holiness of God Himself, which means. That Jesus Christ loved God with all of His heart, all of his soul, all of His mind, all of His strength. The Lord Jesus Christ loved the Lord perfectly, flawlessly, extensively. He's holy, but he's also harmless. Well, this describes his relation manward now. right His relation manward. He is harmless. Again, polar opposite to us. We are harmful. We're harmful to everyone and everything around us. We are. We're harmful to our spouses, to our children, to our parents, to our siblings, to our friends and extended family and co laborers and everything. Standing in a room and sucking God's good air. You can be harmful by the presence of your sinful self. Because we are unholy, we're harmful to those. Our example is not that of sterling godliness. It's not flawless. The things we leave undone that should be done. The things we do that shouldn't be done. Our words, our attitudes, our actions... Not only at people, but before people. We're even harmful to ourselves. We're our own worst enemy. Because of indwelling sin. Here is Jesus and he is harmless, my friends. Not only did he love God perfectly. He loved his neighbor as himself. Flawlessly. He loved his neighbor as himself. Remember in John 8, he turns to his Opposers, and he says, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Bring it. Let's see it. Get it out here. Put it out in the open. Which of you, any of you, anyone at all, convinceth me of sin? Their mouths are slammed shut because none can. He is absolutely harmless. The judge of all the earth looks upon this high priest. And found no fault in him. It's without guile, full of grace and truth. He's undefiled, we're told. Undefiled, we, we of course are defiled. That's what it is to be a sinner. It means to be stained, among other things. We're stained, we're polluted, we're defiled, we're covered in the stench and putrid grime of our own sin, inside and outside, and so on and so forth. He's undefiled, and he's undefiled. While passing through a fallen, defiled world. He, the Son of God, the Incarnate Word, comes into this world. And it's this world that He enters. This fallen, broken, dark, defiled world. And from His infancy until He ascends to heaven, He passes through this whole world. With no defilement. Nothing. Nothing sticks to him. Nothing affects him. Nothing f- flaws him. Right? The, the high priests that, that these Jews want to hold fast to, Aaron and his, his sons and the whole lineage of the Levitical army and so on and so forth, they were morally defiled, personally and morally defiled, and ceremonially defiled. They had to go through all the ceremonial stuff, in order to get ceremonial cleanness. And they needed to offer sins sacrifices for their own sins. Because they're morally defiled. As well. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes and touches the leper. He doesn't become unclean. They become clean. They're healed. He comes to death. And comes into contact with death. And he conquers it. Destroys it, empties it, so that we have an an empty grave. He's tempted and assaulted like no other by the devil and untouched. He's undefiled, just as the rays of the sun can pass through, unpolluted by passing through the stench that hangs over a garbage heap. So the Lord Jesus Christ passes through this world undefiled. We're told that he's separate from sinners. He is the quintessential man of Psalm 1. He is the man of of Psalm 1. The Lord's people are to be Psalm 1, but he was Psalm 1. The man that walked not in the counsel of the ungodly. The man who standeth not in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scorner, but whose delight was in the law of God day and night. He is separate from sinners in the world, not of the world. Aaron was both in the world and of the world. Not so Christ. Separate from sinners. Higher than the heavens, we're told. This is his present place. He's higher than the heavens. He's not earthy. Aaron did everything in terms of his his ministry in this world. And then he was laid in the dust and rotted and was eaten by worms. Christ resurrected passes in his ascension higher than the heavens. The highest possible place of, of honor. He accomplished his high priestly work in this earth. It's true. He's offering himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, among other things. But there are other functions of his priestly work that continue right here, right now. And they're, they're, they're being transacted above the highest heavens in glory itself. You remember the tabernacle, the, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the day of the atonement. We're going to hear more about this in in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Jesus has passed not into that little room fabricated in earth, but into the place that it depicted. Jesus passes into the heavenly sanctuary, into the presence of God. And unlike Aaron, who had to do an about face and come back through the veil and wait for another high priest to enter a year later. Jesus remains in the heavenly sanctuary. He appears. It's the language of chapter 9 verse 24 for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. What happened when the high priest went into the holy of holies? More specifically, What did they say? The law doesn't tell us. The law doesn't tell them, and the historic record doesn't tell us. They may have been silent, but they appeared before the throne, the ark. There's food for thought there, but we'll pass on from it. Jesus appears before God in the heavens, highest heavens. He's not silent. He's making continual intercessions for his people. No one can unite God. No one can unite man to God except he that reaches to God. And this is beyond both the reach of angels and men and never beyond the reach of the one who is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do you treat this high priest? You see the sterling record of all that's described of him here his suitability to to saving sinners and so on how do you treat him are you running to him are you living upon him are you bringing your sins to him moment by moment a life of continual repentance are you depending upon his prayers his office Of high priest hangs on his person and both his person and his office are complete perfection. He is suitable. We are unholy sinners in need of a perfectly holy priest and the fact is that eternity will never discover a flaw in him. All of eternity is not able, will not be able to discover a flaw in him. Thirdly, Christ's single sacrifice that saves. Verse 28, Christ's single sacrifice that saves. For the law maketh him high priest, maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. They did it daily. Sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. Blood pouring constantly. Cotton basins poured, sprinkled. More animals coming in, as it were, like a continual train. Being slaughtered one after another. Day after day. Year after year. Decade after decade. Century after century. In contrast, Jesus Christ offers the sacrifice of himself. Once. Once. What can be contained in that single word, once? Well, there are p- parts of chapters 8, 9, and 10 that will unpack what that contains. We note here that he offers himself once. Theirs had to be repeated because there was no, there was no abiding efficacy in the sacrifices, the ceremonial system itself, right? It, it wasn't an end in itself. It was just a means to point to something else But when that something else comes, Jesus himself, and he does, once for all, offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, it is perfect. And there's there's no room left for any other to ever be needed or warranted. And so may God damn the damnable doctrine of the Mass with its perpetual sacrifice. Once, the Bible says, perfection personified at Calvary. Aaron offered sacrifices for himself and for others. Christ offereth himself. No sacrifice for himself. His sacrifice of himself is entirely for all of the sins of all of the elect. In one fell swoop... There's a complete atonement, never to be repeated. They were mere men. He is not mere man. He is the Son. He is the Son, the eternal Son of the eternal Father. They have infirmities, sinful infirmities. He is consecrated, He is perfected. It could be translated as your margin says. He's absolutely perfect in contrast to all of their imperfections, their infirmities. And he is a priest that continues to serve forevermore. That is to say, his priestly ministry is perpetual and continual. It takes us back to where we where we were in verse twenty five, seeing he ever liveth to make intercessions for them. He lives for his people. He lives forever for his people. When he comes in his revelation to John in the last book of the Bible, and he appears in that vision to to the Apostle John, Jesus Christ, who is above the highest heaven, appears in the attire of a high priest. The imagery that is depicted there is priestly imagery. He's continuing in this priestly ministry because he does so forevermore. You cannot be saved without Christ's living forevermore, interceding forevermore. You can't be saved without it. And so, what is he doing, children? You know, he's passed into the highest heavens. He's perfected for forevermore. What is the Lord Jesus Christ doing? Well, in terms of this office, the office of his priesthood, he's doing many things. First of all, he's presenting his merits before the Father, he lays out all that he is, he lays out all the work that he's accomplished. He lays out the perfection and flawlessness of his sacrifice. He lays out the work of offering that sacrifice. He brings it all to the Father. He's come full loop. It all began in the eternal council of, of the Trinity. In the covenant of redemption. All these things were planned and purposed. And Christ has come and he's fulfilled all of that. And now he's bringing it back to the Father and says, here it is. All that I have entered into covenant to do, I have done. And I present it completed and perfected before thee. But that's not all. He also appears to present our persons. He comes before God. Having his children with him. To use the language of scripture. To have his children with him. He presents His people as those who've been clothed in His own perfect righteousness, who've been washed in His own perfect atoning blood. He presents His people and He says, Here, O Lord, are they who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. I present them as those who have been purchased with my own blood. Here they are presenting our persons. We can think so abstractly about that. But it's good for you to think personally about that. You in particular believer. You singled out from the mass of the elect. Standing as it were. Set apart. He presents your person before the throne. But that's not all. He's also presenting your prayers. All of your prayers, as we've heard in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and elsewhere, they all rise as a sweet-smelling savor. As that, that picture of the ceremonial incense appearing, they all come, as it were, through the work of his priestly ministry. They're all presented through the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and made acceptable so that, so that we pray. And the, the Son is bringing petition after petition to the Father. Right? He's presenting our prayers, but he's also presenting his prayers. He prays and ever prays for his people. He presents your service. Those little tiny tokens where you venture out of your comfort zone and do something small to fetch glory for the king. The Lord says, I snatch that up. I gather it up. It may feel fragile and frail to you. The Lord gathers it up in his hands. And he says, here's the service of one of my own accepted in my name. And through my mediation. And the Lord says, I counted his treasure. Lay it to the balance. It's better than gold, silver and precious stone. This cup of cold water. It'll be rewarded in eternity for glory. It's the Lord presenting our service before him. He intercedes for us. His mediatory life. Right? He is producing fruits. The fruits of his oblation are offering. He's producing fruits from his offering as they as those as as his work is being applied to his believing people. And the, the result is that the, the people of God are eternally safe. Right, where we're saying that we're saved to the uttermost. That means that we're eternally in a place of safety. Why? Because of all the transactions which are happening right now within the veil, all the transactions that are happening by the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of His people, we're safe, forever safe. It means that. It means that there is. Unchanging love, unchanging care, unchanging power for the Lord's people. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The goodness that you've seen in the past from his hand. He's no different. He's the same in his goodness. You know, you ask yourself this question. Is the Lord good or not? Is he good or not? Is the Lord wise or not? Is the Lord powerful or not? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Since the Lord is good, since the Lord is wise, since the Lord is powerful, why are you fearing instead of exercising faith in him? Your fear betrays the fact that you either believe he's not good or he's not wise in what he's doing with you or he's not able, powerful, to help you in what he's doing with you. Which of of those three is it? But he is, he is, he is. He's unchanging in his love for his people. When a believer is brought to salvation, they're not taken to heaven immediately. If you're a believer, you're left for a time in the enemy's country. You're left in the enemy's country, in this world for a time. That means that you have an urgent need. Still, you have an urgent need. Because there is continued opposition from all the things you know and we've described. Continued opposition due, due to sin. Well, where are you going to find your confidence when you're, your tail's getting kicked? And the temptations that are assaulting you. And you stumbled and you've done a face plant. And you're bruised and bleeding because of your own stupidity and mine and your own sin. In the present battle with sin, where do you get your confidence? It's in the fact that Christ's intercessions are forevermore. We're depending upon him to deliver to the uttermost, to save to the uttermost. When Jesus presents his prayers, it's not like ours. His prayers are not that of humble supplication. His prayers are that which are endowed with authority. <clears throat> he lays claim to what is, what is his. What the Son asks, the Father delights to grant. Always. What the Son asks, the Father delights to grant. And the Son asks everything for his people. What shall I get for them? I'll get everything. Father, give them everything. Withhold from them nothing. No good thing. Grant that they would be co-heirs with me. That all that is mine would be theirs. The son, the son asks. Right? He asks things. But what he asks, the Father delights to give. And what he asks is everything. What a glorious thing should melt our hearts. Christ never forgets his people. Christ never fails his people. Because he is the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, our everlasting Father, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, look upon thy Son, who is the great High Priest of thy people, and grant that we might be found accepted in him. O Lord, give us to revel in thy Son. Thou hast said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. May we, O Lord, forever say, we are well pleased in Him. Gather glory, we pray, to Thy Son and to Him alone, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.